0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody. First of all, uh, thank you again for inviting me. It's always so nice to see you know a bunch, a group of bunch of young guys who um, I could fear to say you know come from maybe not the most religious background, come during a, a weeknight to come and learn Torah. So, mamash chazak baruch. and and uh, also thank you very much uh, again to the Akhdut brothers and as well as uh, to Gabriel for for helping arrange this. And b'shat uh, Hashem, we'll will hopefully gain a tremendous amount of inspiration tonight. And we I see we're learning for, for Avner Ben Yosef. We have a for Avner Ben Yosef. A whole list. All oh, right. We have a for Avner For Michael Ben Yoya, Tariel Ben Yono. Avner uh, Ben Yosef, Zippor Bat Tamara, uh, Alik Ben Niria, and Rafal Ben Niriah. Yaakov Ben Peninah. And Yaakov Ben Peninah. Maybe them out, Yisrael. may be a zakhut, a merit for their full, complete recovery. Also learning Fuhash, Fuhash them out, Mayam khaya bat vrachah, as well. Okay, so let us begin. You guys are going to get psyched tonight, because we are going to cover the topic. One of the most amazing topics I find fascinating is Purim. And... Um, when I speak about this topic, I already get excited. You know, it's almost like I could tense the wine, even though you guys already have the wine over here, but it's almost like it's in my blood already. It's ah, it's brewing. So, there's a very, very famous Gemara in Ta'anit. Um, and the Gemara reads that says that, Mishinichnas Adal marbim b'simcha. Usually, the synagogue, I see this, there's a, they don't have it over here, but there's signs everywhere usually. When Adal comes in, when the month of Adal, which is the month of Purim comes in, you're supposed to be happy. And the question is, is How? What you know you know the, the worst things A lots of someone is having a bad day. What is the worst thing? He's having like a you know, he's sad, he's depressed. The worst thing that you could possibly tell that person is hey buddy, cheer up. oh, thank you because I didn't know how to do that. Now, I, now they told me that, thank you. Now I'm going to cheer up and have a good day. So when the Torah says that we have to be happy, what does that mean? How are we supposed to be happy? The um, and you know it's it's a it's a very interesting uh, um, you know concept because it says when Mishinichnas av when um, the the month of Av comes in, which is the month of Tisha B'Av, uh, the month that's generally not a great month for the Jewish calendar, it says that we have Mima'atim B'Simcha, we decrease in our happiness. And there it gives us how to decrease in happiness. You know, so there's different, again, there's Fadim and Ashkenazim, there's different Menagim, when not to shave, when not to eat meat, and things, and so on and so forth, in ways to decrease in your happiness. Comes Ada, and it says, marbim besimcha. increase your happiness. And they are like, All right, go figure it out on your own. Figure out how to increase. I'd right? say, so, yeah, some people, they get increased happiness. So they'll, they, they'll find a plant that can increase their happiness. You know, they'll find something that's, you know, maybe an alcoholic beverage that could increase their happiness. But what is the Torah way? How are we supposed to increase our happiness? So, there is a, um, a very interesting concept in Judaism. That what do you think it's better? To do something? Or to want to do something but not been able to do something. So let me give you an example before you uh, jump. So let's say um, a person wants to give charity. But he can't because he doesn't have any money. So, But he really, really wants to give it. So what would be better? If he actually gave the charity and he had the money? Or is it better if he didn't have any charity, he didn't have any money, he wasn't able to give it but he really, really wanted to do it? So knowledge that we have in our day and age will be like, listen, you know, the bottom line is action. You can't go to your, to your to your boss and say, listen, I almost closed today, you know, 14 deals. A guy says, I don't care about almost. I want to see what's closed. A guy could say, "I you know, I almost closed a $2 million deal. I'd be like, very nice. But if you close a $15,000 deal, that's better than closing an almost $2 million deal. So in this world, it's a world of action. It's a world of asiyah. It's a world of doing. So we look at it and in this world. You're saying, you know, what? it would be better. It would be better if the guy actually had some money and paid him. Who cares if he wanted to do what he wanted to do? At the end of the day, he did. The guy is poor. He didn't have any money and he left without anything Comes the Torah and says, "No, no, no! There's something unbelievable, so amazing in the Torah that says that if you want to do something and you really want to do something, but you can't, beyond circumstances that are beyond your control, you get rewarded as if you did that." Now we're gonna have to explain this concept very, uh, you know, in a lot of detail, and it's not just as, uh, you know, as simple as that. But that is a concept that uh, that lies uh, and in, in the Torah. There's a in Tanit. Page 25a, there was, a big, uh, there was a big, big tzaddik by the name of Rabbi Hanina Ben Dosa. Very, very famous uh, stories about him. So there was once a story about him in the Gemara Antanit. And it says, you know, he didn't have any money. He was, he, you know, he was poor. And his wife said, you know, we need some money, as many wives say nowadays. And uh, she goes and he says, okay, what am I supposed to do? I don't work. I'm a rabbi. What am I supposed to do? You know what? Go, let's go and pray. He goes and he starts praying. He prays to God. And, you know, I don't know if you know any stories about Ben Bendoza. When he prays, God listens. You know, he was the one who, you know, you know, the, there's a whole, uh, you know, his descendant was a the one who made a circle with the rain. In any, in any case, um, he goes and he prays to God and something miraculous happens. Something miraculous that I don't think I've, you know, definitely nowadays in age you don't see it. Um, he prayed, God, please give me money. Give me panasa, Give me something. Miraculous. A hand appeared out of heaven and sort of handed him a, a, a solid gold Table, like a leg of a table. He hands it. He's like, all right, thank you very much. And he walks home. He's like, all right, honey, we got some money. And she's like, uh, you know, sees a solid, you know, what a solid gold, you know, you know, worth worth a easy few million dollars. She's like, uh, where did you, where did you pick it up? You know, his <laughs> wife starts getting nervous. they looking outside the curtains, uh, you know. So uh, where, where where did you get that? And he says, listen, I, you know, I prayed, and the hand came out from heaven, and and gave it to me. She's like, wow, you know, it's amazing. Okay. that night he goes to sleep, and he has a dream. In his dream, he dreams that he is sitting on a table that only has two legs. And other righteous people, other tzaddikim, are sitting in a table that has three legs. So he's very di- disturbed by this. So he wakes up, you know, in the morning, and he tells his wife his dream. And his wife says, you know what? I don't want any, you know, I, in the next world, I want to make sure my table has three legs. He says, I don't want everybody else to have, you know, uh, three legs, and we're going to only have two legs. Do me a favor. Tell God to take this back. So, he's, you know, wife says, well, you know, the husband got to do. So he goes, he takes the, he takes the leg. And he goes back to his prairie place, like, listen, God, uh, you know, I appreciate the gift, um, but, uh, you know, backseat, maybe, can you take it back? And miraculously, a hand appeared from heaven and took it back. Now, the, the, the concept to understand this is what, what's going on with the story. Sounds like a fairy tale. So, the, the, the Torah explains as follows. The Torah explains that when, when, uh, uh the, 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 world is a very famous, uh, Mishnah and Avot. Translation is, the world is standing on three things. On Torah, which is learning Torah. There's Avodah, which is nowadays translated into prayer. And Gmilut Chasadim, which is deeds of kindness. Those are the three things that standing. This, the, the, you know, we spoke about the rabbi's tables that had three legs. That's what we're referring to. They had three legs. Those legs were, were represented by Torah, Avodah, and Gmilut Chasadim. So, comes, uh, um, you know, comes, comes. Rabbi Hanina Ben dosa and he gets one of those legs. Those legs was the leg of Gimeluk Hasadim. Because the thing it was like this: why did, why did, why did Rabbi Hanina Ben want money? Because he, he wanted, it, he couldn't finance his new Lexus. He wanted to give an extension in his backyard, and uh, you know, he wanted to go on vacation to Australia. What is it that a biggest rabbi? Why do they need money for? And the answer is that every time that you know, for for some reason, you know, people go to you know, I, I get this, I get this actually pretty frequently. I get messages as if like I'm an open bank, be like uh, literally like no hi, no hello. I have no idea who this person is, um, rabbi. I need 50 bucks. Like all right, good to know. <laughs> like all right, you know what? Is, you know, um, I guess the is the, the funny. You know how you get these um, these emails from this Nigerian prince who needs to deposit eighty million dollars in your bank account ASAP, or he's going to lose it all because the Nigerian government is going to take it away. Um, so, I got this. I got this uh, message. You know, not too far. You know, not too long ago, where there was a guy from like I don't know one of these places, and he's like, "Listen, I want to open up a synagogue, and we're short eight thousand um, dollars." You know. Uh, so can you send it to me? I'm like, I don't know. Since when did the Jews, you know? And he's not even Jewish, you know. He wants all, oh, you know, whatever. So, but, but. People under the assumption that, first of all, you think that under the title rabbi, you're automatically obligated to, you're, I'm at your service, what do you need? Money? Sure, not a problem. <laughs> Whatever it is that you need. So, um, he, so, so, uh, Rabbi so you know why he wanted money? Because people came over to him and begged him. He says, Rabbi, please, I have no money for my daughter's wedding. I have no money to put food on the table. And it hurt him. It hurt him so much to see all his fellow Jews having and begging for money and he's not able to give anything. That's why he wanted the money. He wanted the money so he could do chesed. He wanted the money so he could give to people that 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 are lacking and that are needing it. So then, comes, comes a toilet and goes back to the, the thing of how we started. We started off with a question, is it better to do, or is it better to want to do and not been able to do? And I'll give you an example. And we said, and we come to the conclusion that it's better, which is more reward, that you're not able to do, but you want to do. And the, the idea is like this. Let's say somebody comes to your door, and, uh, you know, late at night, and he's knocks on, you get a knock on the door, and out, you know, it, you know, your kid looks out the window, the, the window there and says, you know, it looks like, uh, you know, someone's collecting for charity. So, uh, you know, what do usually parents tell the kids? Go tell them daddy's not home, right? Great, great canoe for the children. Learn how to lie. Teach them how to lie from the beginning ages. So, he goes, um, and he says, you know what, no, I'm gonna go and open the door. He goes, you go, you open the door, and this guy gives you the best sob story you ever heard in your life. You know, hey, you know, his mother, her, you know, lost, you know, both feet of diabetes. His father, you know, was in Vietnam. You know, his uncle was, uh, t- you know, in a terrorist attack. His children, all 12 of them don't have any legs, and they are begging, you know, and they have one surgery. It would, and the biggest sob story that you could possibly give, and your heart just goes out for this guy. You're like, all right, you know, what are you short? How much do you need? You know, you had money. Yevanasah is 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 blossoming. He says, what do you need? And says, to be honest, right now, all I need, all I need is twenty grand, and I'm good. I got the, you know, I got a cup of twenty grand. So listen, twenty grand, I'm not going to give you. He thinks about it. this guys, you know, he's really legitimate. Really feel bad. All right, you know, I'll write you a check, ten percent of that. You know, I'll give you, you know, you know, I'll give you two grand. He says, two grand. You know, in a nice hand. You know, somebody just walked up the door, and you're giving him two grand. It's a big, you know, big mitzvah. So you go, you write him a check for two grand. He gives you a blessing from now until tomorrow. Like all he's, he's calling all his great ancestors. They're all gonna bless you. Everything from today till tomorrow, he kisses you. He gives you papers. He says, "Don't worry about it. These are excellent kabbalistic things. Keep it." He's blessing you from today till tomorrow. You close the door, you turn around, and you think you are the biggest tzaddik in the entire world. You're like, you know, who needs boha? Come on, you know, you think that you're the, you just did the biggest mitzvah, and you did, you did an amazing mitzvah. But you didn't cut and cover all his costs. You covered, you know, ten percent. You gave him a large check. What happens a half hour later? Half hour later, you know, the guy, you know, you're starting to think and be like, I could have given 500 bucks, that would have been more than enough. Again, two two grand, I was an idiot. You know? By the next day, you're like, had I given 50 bucks already, it would have been good enough. Who gives $50 by the door? I give $2,000. Who knows what this guy's gonna do about it? So slowly, slowly, you're slowly regretting it. You have different emotions that are coming up. When you give, when you do a, a mitzvah, when you do any good deed, it's not just a good deed that gets evaluated for worth in, in heaven of, of how much value it's worth. It's everything that comes into play. Were you, you know, but were you very happy? Did you give him the charity and be like, you know, you know, just get out of my face? Or were you giving him with a smile? Were you, were you satisfied? Afterwards, were you so happy that you gave the charity everything comes into play in your, in your actual reward? So you see over here when someone's giving charity, he's not already making 100% of the reward for it's stuck out because some get, you know, get some points deducted maybe for his attitude. Other points is he didn't, whatever, he didn't, you know, give as much as he could have. And so things are get deducted. But what happens if he comes to the door and he tells you this greatest sob story and you're like, Listen, listen, I, I, I wish I could give you. I don't have any money. I wish I could give you. It sounds, I, I really want, and from the bottom of your heart, you want to give this guy everything. But you can't. You're not able to give this guy everything. God counts as if you gave him everything. You have the, the, the terminology in Hebrew is machshavak imaseh. You wanted to do something. You couldn't do it because of circumstances that are outside your control. You get rewarded as if you did it. So this is what Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa wanted to get, return the table back. He says, I got the table, and I, I got the gold, I got the money now, but I could give it. But if I'm giving it, it's not going to be valued as much as if I wanted to give it. So better is like, God said, you know what, I want the three leg, I want the, th- the third leg on my table, I want the table of to take it back. And God went and God t- took it back. We we'll see over here that it is, um, better to do something I have the, and by the way, we have to, we have to explain this. This doesn't mean let, let's say, you know, you're, um, you know, it's, it's seven o'clock, your alarm rings, and you have to go to Shakrit, and you're sitting in bed tomorrow morning, and you're like, I really, I really want to go. Uh, I really want to go, but it's so cozy in here, and so cold outside. You know what? It's as if I went. It doesn't work that way. The way that it works is when you, it's outside of your capability to go to do it, then if you want to do it, then you get rewarded as if you did it. But it's not like somebody who uses, you know, as, a, as an excuse. The idea is, this is a, there's a new uh, phenomenon that I start hearing. So, you know, I speak to people about keeping Shabbat, keeping kosher, leaning more, yada, yada, yada. All things, uh, you know, obviously better for the spiritual soul. And I, I've asked a few people, I'm like, do you keep Shabbat yet? And I got this response. I want to want to keep Shabbat. And I'm like, well, you know, I need a mathematician over here. What does that want to want to keep Shabbat? He's a yes or no question. You want to keep Shabbat? You know. It's like, you know, I, I I don't want yet, but I want to want. I want to want that I should keep Shabbat. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Those type of people, they're not getting the reward as if they kept Shabbat because they want to want to maybe think about maybe possibly keeping Shabbat in the future. You keep Shabbat, you get the reward. You, if Shabbat you're not able to keep because it's outside of your circumstances, let's say it's a life-threatening situation, then it doesn't count as if you violated the Shabbat. Again, because it depends a lot on, on the on the capability around it. So with this, let's return back to our story of Puyim. We look at the story of Puyim. We look at the story of Estelle. And, you know, we're used to the story. At least, uh, you know, whoever is not, not familiar with the story, I'm in the middle of a series on Torah anytime it's going to be, on three-class series on the story of Puyim like you've never heard it before. Um, really, really amazing, amazing uh, story. And uh, so we, we are going on it, so you'll see it on there. And I would strongly recommend, even people that did, um, you know, know the story, I 99% of the people did not hear the story because we, we go through all the midrashim really make it a very interesting thing. Okay. So, the um, you go to the story of, of Estelle. You go, we're coming up to Purim. The story is not a great story. It, if you look at it, it's not a happy story. You know when it becomes happy? At the end. At the end it becomes happy. The end of the story of Estelle is a good story. The first like eight chapters, seven chapters, whatever it is, it's all like Everything is going wrong. Esther gets taken to the to Achashverosh. You know the Jews get sentenced to death. The you know ha, you know Haman is trying to kill Mordechai. Everything is like bad 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 bad. And then at the end, it's good. So it's not it, you know the story is, is, is made in a in a in a very interesting way that you know the Halakha is is that you have to read the Megillah in order. If you read it out of order, you're not yotze. So there is a very, very interesting, and and the Alshak brings it down that if um, the the, you know Haman comes from you know Amalek, right? We're going to speak about Amalek today. Haman comes from Agag, Agag comes from Eliphaz, Eliphaz comes from Esav, and you know that's the the lineage, and and uh, and uh, that's where the the origins of where Amalek originally came from. So you have Amalek, and the the which is which is the power that they have a very very strong power. And how did this power come out and how it was brought to the story? So comes Haman. Haman was the villain, right? The, the bad guy in the story. And he goes to Ahasuerus and says, listen, um, I wanna, I wanna kill the Jews, you know, like all of them. I wanna just destroy, annihilate every single Jew. So Achashverosh says, "Listen, buddy, you know, you know how many people tried to do this. So listen, I'm not a big fan of the Jews myself. But how are you gonna kill all of them? It's so difficult to kill all of them. So he, he, uh, he says, he says, uh, says there were so many people that tried to kill him. They couldn't kill him. The guys are still around. They're gonna be around forever. So." Haman says, what are you talking about? First of all, he says their God is not even so strong anymore. Look, look what happened. Yeah, back then, Parol, he was strong. Back then, he had the, the Egypt. But look, his temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. The guys, God is old and weak already. We could take him. And um, and then he goes and he says, uh, you know, I have a power that everybody else did not have the power that I have. So Ahasuerus says, what power do you have? So he says, I come from Amalek. Amalek comes from Esav, we just said. Esav has one power, one mitzvah that he did better than Yaakov Avinu. And that is Kibbut Aba'im. He honored his parents so well. It says that Esab did not go to his honor, his parents, unless he's wearing his Shabbos clothes. You know, what happens if your parent tells you, you know, calls you up, hey, can you pick up something? Come on, what do you need? I'm hanging out with the boys. You know, all right, all right, you know, we'll talk later. You don't answer it. You tag You know, you, you know what? What? Kibbutz Ha'em is a very difficult, uh, um, you know, mitzvah uh, to, to to do. Esab it. Every time that his father asked him something, he wouldn't just go to his father. He would change into his best clothes, you know, like he's meeting the president. You walk up to my dear father, anything else that I could do for you? Mamash like serving a king. And Yaakov Avinu was gone for 22 years. He didn't serve his father because he was away at Shemaviva, and then he went to, to uh, you know, to Lavan. So he was away. So comes uh, comes um, comes Haman. Haman says, "I come from Esav. Esav has the power of Kibud We have the spiritual power to destroy the Jews. We have the ability to destroy the Jews." So now let's look at the story. We said the story didn't. It, it's not so good. It's not so interesting. It's not so. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing. It's very interesting, but it's not. It doesn't sound so happy. And in fact, I'll tell you. I'll share with you a little point of the story that actually sounds very depressing. The story about Estelle's origin. You know, Estelle was an orphan, uh, that, as you're probably well aware of. But Estelle, when her mother was pregnant with uh, with Estelle, um, you know, her father passed away, and the father, you know, the, everybody was going to the funeral. Will be like, oh my God, you know, a, a new a newly married couple, you know, have a baby on the way, and now there's, you know, the, you know, they are, well, what do people you say? Well, God, why? Why? What? Come on, you know, st- they just started out their family. She's three months pregnant, four months pregnant. You got to take away the father. You got now, the, now she's going to grow up without any father. Comes, this, comes the time of birth, she gives birth, and unfortunately, Estel's mother passed away during childbirth. And everybody went to that, you know, be like, look at this. First, we this you know, first there's no father. Now there's no mother. What are you, God, what's happening? What is going on over here? And uh, people are asking questions. What's going on over here? And uh, little did they know that everything was ordained for a specific purpose. Because what happens, it says the Al-Sheikh, you know what the greatest, the greatest honoring of a parent is when you mourn for a parent. When you mourn for a parent, that is the greatest honor that you could possibly give a parent. And, and, and even more so, Estelle was such a, you know, such a tzadikah, such a, such a holy soul, that, you know, she would go as a little girl, she would go in the street, and she would see, you know, other parents holding their little kids, you know, with a little ice cream and a lolly, and she looks at them with tears, tears swelling up in her eyes, and be like, you know, why can't I have my mommy? Why can't I have my tati? Why, where's my daddy and mommy? And, but you know why she, why, she, why she cared so much about it? Because she wanted one thing. She says, it's such a big mitzvah to do kibuda v'eim. I would love to honor my parents. I would love to listen to my parents. I would love to just do whatever it is that they say. But I can't, I don't have a parent. Says so HaKadosh like, oh, you want to do it. But you can't do it. It's reward as if you did do it. Which means is, is that now you see over here, Haman, who was the one who took down Haman? Estelle. You know why Estelle took down Haman? Because she was the only one that was able to take down Haman. She was the only one who didn't, who had that power of kibbutz Abaim stronger than Haman, stronger than Esau, because she had the ability that she could, she, she couldn't honor her pants. but she wanted to honor her pants. She, so because of that, she went and she was able to destroy and, and take down Haman, and in turn of events, was saved the entire Jewish nation. Amazing. So we see the story of Purim, it looks bad, 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 bad. But you know why it looks bad, 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 bad? Because we don't see the full picture. We don't see the full picture. You know when you will see the full picture? At the end. At the end of the story, that's when you see the full picture. You'll be like, oh, now I know why her parents had to pass away so young. Now I know why everything happened the way that it's supposed to happen. We started off with the question, how are you going to increase in happiness? You want to know how you increase in happiness? The secret is right in the Mikilah. The secret of increasing in happiness right in, the, in, in, the, in Estelle. Because you look at the happiness, if somebody's happy only when good things happen to them, they're not going to be happy for that long. Think about how many amazing things happen to you. Yeah, you know, so okay, so you get a good job, maybe you win the lottery, maybe you go on vacation, you get married. Here and there, sporadically, you have you have bursts of happiness. But how often do you actually get it when when you're you know when you're just ecstatic in ecstasy? Unless hopefully you're not taking ecstasy, but you're in ecstasy without without taking the pill throughout the entire day. Very very rarely. And in fact, generally people usually see that what the more bad things happen to them than good things. You want to know how to marbim b'simcha? You want to know how to increase your happiness? When you realize that everything bad that happens is really for the good. That's how you're going to marbim marbim b'simcha. Comes Estelle, the story of Estelle, and we see that everything looks bad. Everything looks bad. The beginning, it's like the Jews are getting destroyed. Haman, is getting taken to Achash Haman is going to get killed. The, the kids are in the jail. Everything is bad, 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 bad. But when we realize from Estelle, it's like nothing is bad. We just don't see the full picture. Everything is really good if we live our life that way. If we live our, uh, the life, uh, our life in a way, thinking that at the end it doesn't matter what happened to me. God loves me. Everything that God does, God does for the best. Everything is for the best. When we think like that, our life is going to be happy. And the secret of that is right here in pulim, because that's how we see that. That how you're supposed to. Uh, you have your outlook in um, in life. You know, there was um, there was a story that. There, um, there, was once a, there was once a father who didn't have, um, you know, his plan was very difficult for him. and He went to work two jobs just to support his, uh, you know, his family. He had a large family, and he didn't take a, a you know, what was bugging him inside. He didn't, ta- he didn't take, like, a vacation in, like, 12 years. And, you know, he's like, he's like, I'm bugging out. I need a vacation. This is terrible. The stress is up to the wazoo. But I can't. I can't afford a vacation. How are you supposed to you? you know, I can't. So he decides that he, from the little paycheck that he has, he's going to put away on the side, for, you know, for the whole family, we're going to go away as a vacation. And for two years, he's saving up for this amazing vacation. And he's planning it for months. And he's saving up every every, every, every week, he puts away another 50 bucks for the vacation. And slowly, slowly, he's building up his, the money for the vacation. And finally, 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 he's able to have enough money and he books a vacation. That, and they're so excited, he's so happy. Everything is like, you know, he spent hours and days organizing everything so that everything will go without a hitch. He goes and he says, okay, all the kids pile into the car, D-Day came, it's time for go out on vacation. And they're all getting into the car, and then uh, suddenly, you know, they do like the head count and be like, oh, we're, we're missing one. So um, the father runs that out, you know, back into the house and be like, you know, Moshe, come down. And uh, so Moshe says, you know, give me a second, I got to pick up and get all my toys. And the father's like getting antsy, he's like, you know, we're going to miss the flight, we're going to miss this, get down right now. And the, the kid's getting all stressed, he's like, I need to find my toy, I'm not gonna, you know, the kids get very, you know, uh, into, into, I, I'm not gonna get the toy, I'm not gonna be able to go, yada, 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 back and forth, back and forth, finally the kid says, fine, he starts running down the stairs. He starts running down the stairs, the father says, lock the door behind you, I'm waiting in the car. He, and the, you know, going outside the, the stairs, there was, there was more stairs going, you know, from outside the front, port, front door to the, to the, um, to the landing. And the father's sitting in the car, and the kid is running, he's, you know, he's going very fast, because he doesn't want his father to be, be upset, and unfortunately he tripped over one foot on another one, and he started tumbling down the stairs. And the father's like, oh no. And, you know, he gets out of the car, you know, the mother is the first thing that screams and yells, and she runs out of the car, and she, you know, the father's like, just walk it off, you know, just cu- it's alright, you know, just come in there. And the mother is screaming and screaming, she's looking at the father, she's like, she's like get in here, get in here, get in here. So he runs out of the car, the father goes in front of the, in front of the kid, he sees that, um, you know, his foot was turning in a way that it's not supposed to be turned. And he's like, you have got to be kidding me. They right away, they call Hatzalah, they call I, yeah, they come with the ambulance and they bring him straight into, the, um, uh, straight into the hospital. The father's sitting there riding in the ambulance with his son, and he goes up to God, and he says, what are you doing to me? He's like, come on. He says, really? Twelve years I didn't have a vacation. For two years I've been but waiting for this vacation. Now that I finally, finally had a break, you gotta take that away from me. It's like, why? What did I do that you don't like about me? Why are you always against me? And uh, with that, that's the father. The father speaking in the. And by the way, obviously no one should ever speak like that because everything, obviously, that God does is for the best. But he's going and, he, and he's he's, go, he's complaining. He's complaining. And um, you know what can you do? His son is, is yelling in pain, so he's you know, so anyway, you know, he's trying to calm his sound down. They get into the hospital. They run a quick CAT scan and they say, listen, we have to do surgery on this. You know, there's, there's stuff going on there. They, they, there was a blockage. You know, it, it doesn't look good. Let me, let's just go into the surgery. We'll, we, we have to, uh, you know, fix it up. Hour, hour and a half surgery it tops you. You know, it should be okay. The father says uh, we'll be able to still make, uh, you know, our flight. That is are you kidding me? What are you talking about, flight now? Your son just broke his foot. yeah, yeah no, no, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, you, know, you know, I was asking the nurse, is there any way we can, you know? I get that. But um, he's, so he's going, and he's sitting, waiting for the, you know, waiting for the surgery to be over. He's looking at his watch. He's, you know, pacing back and forth. He picks up a habit of smoking suddenly. You know, he's like, he's uh, very anxious. And then finally, an hour turns into two hours, turns into three hours. He's like, what's going on over here? They told me an hour, an hour and a half tops. So, he goes, and after three hours, the doctor comes out of the surgery, and um, the doctor, you know, takes off his mask, and he's like, he's like Dad, you've got to sit down. The guy says, you know, was like, what happened with my son? You know, he just had a broken foot. What's going on over here? What took you three hours? And he says, I don't know what your God loves about you, or what happened, but you have to hear this. So we were going, we were, you know, operating on the leg, and as I was operating on the leg, I noticed something in the back of the knee that uh, usually doesn't belong there. So uh after I finished operating electric, I went to check it out and I wanted to see what 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 was there. And it turns out that this kid you know, your son, he had a cancerous tumor. He had a huge cancerous tumor in the back of his knee. And he would have never found out. It was it was very close to being starting to spread. Since so we there was no way that we would have been able to ever find it out. Because it broke his foot. That's why we were able to catch it and save it, and we have completely healed it. You know, there's nothing else that needs to be done. We took it out completely. We'll come in for some check-ins, so, you know, with some blood work and, and uh, routine things, but we, we think we actually took care of it. And, the you know, the father says, the, you know, thank you very much. Looks up to God, and he says, thank you. You know, I'm sorry for ever doubting you. Because we think in our life that everything that happens, God hates us, because that's why He's not giving us everything that we ever ask for. But little do we know that God loves us so much that He's making sure that everything that happens is actually for our best. And in fact, there was a um, you know, there's another story with a similar idea that there was um, the there was once a bunch of German Jews that escaped uh, Germany, you know, when when Hitler came to power, and they they got on a boat. It was literally like a boat full of Jews. And they got the boat and they went to England. When they got into England, it's a true story. So when they got to England, they go and, um, they, the, the question was, you know, should the English government let them into their, into their land? Because, you know, you know, they're at war with Germany and, you know, you don't just bring it. So they're thinking, you know, maybe they're spies. Maybe they're German spies coming to, you know, to our land. So they're going back and forth, back and forth, even though had they really just opened their eyes, they saw they were a bunch of Jews who are, you know, like, you know, literally s- struggling just to survive. But they wanted to close their eyes and said, listen, we have an excuse. Let's not take the refugees. They are, you know, Jewish, um, you know, possibly uh, German spies. So they they couldn't just ship them back to uh to to Germany. They still had a little bit of a heart. So they decided they're going to send them to Australia. They're going to send them to Australia, which was a British colony. So um, which is why, if I'm not mistaken, you go to Australia, they drive on the wrong side of the road. That's how we classify it. This is how you know you're American. Australia and England, they drive on the wrong side of the road. We drive on the right side of the road. So um, yeah, they they were you know a British colony. So they decided they're going to ship them to Australia. Fine, at least they have a place to go. One short problem, the entire ocean was infested with German U-boats. German U-boats were submarines. And uh the Germans basically if you weren't German, then you were dead. You were fish your fish bait. So they were looking for sailors to sail them to uh to Australia. No one wanted to sail you know to Australia with a bunch of Jews. Are you kidding me? That's a death sentence. There's little literally zero chance of actually making it to Australia without getting blown up. Question? Oh no. Okay. So he said literally you had zero percent chance of actually going and making it to um to to Australia. So they go and they they put out a a you know request who you know sailor captains we need we need a crew for Australia, so you know a few people picked up on this. These are people that are usually are not the best uh, breed of the crop. You know the the sort of the slums and the, and the punks of society, uh, people that were in prison and you know things uh, people of that sort. So they decided that you uh, said listen we'll do it. They offered a nice now uh, sum of money. So listen it's good pay. Let's go, let's go for it. What do we have to live for anyways? So they go and they decide that this crew of sailors, a bunch of misfits, they're gonna go and they're gonna, they're gonna sail this, uh, this entire Jewish, uh, boat to, uh, to Australia and, uh, to there where they could, uh, live peacefully for the, whatever it is that the remainder that they have. So, they decide and they set, uh, sail. They're, sa- they're sailing for like a few days and suddenly, you know, the, um, these bunch of, you know, sailors are, you know, thinking and be like, listen, Says we have the Jews in our hands. weren't particularly Jew lovers. And be like, um, why don't we uh, look through their belongings? Maybe we can, uh you know, get a little extra money over here. Uh, no one cares about that anyway. They're not going to. What are going to say? That they, you know, so they have to thank us just as much as that we're risking our lives for them. So all their belongings belong to us, right? They have a common uh, knowledge of some people nowadays. So they said, everything belongs to me. And they go, and they start looking through the Jews, they start, they put the Jews in the, in the corner, and they start going through all their belongings. Meanwhile, the Jews had nothing. They literally, anything that they had, they gave away to the Germans to allow them to escape, to bribe them, to get them out of Germany. So the the, the sailors got so upset, they started chucking all their luggage overboard. And they started chucking, you know, the, the, you know and, and besides the clothing, they had papers that were written by their parents that they had last seen before they went into the crematorium and they got burnt to death. The parents wrote them a letter and be like, Are you serious? That's the last thing I have left for my family. And they're throwing all these things and books and journals and things like that in the Sudolim and everything gets thrown into the ocean. The Jews over there would be like, You know, come on, God. You gotta be kidding me. We just escaped from our, we just barely escaped Germany. We got to England. They kicked us out. Now he's sending us back to Australia. Even the belongings we can't take. Even those things we can't take. Our last memory of our parents we can't have with us. So they go and they get to Australia. Surprisingly, they can make it there safely. And the story, you know, thinks that they just made it. About, uh, 20 to 30 years later, I, I, no, maybe even more, like about 40 years later, in the 1980s, they had a scuba team, uh, a scuba diving team went and they were scuba diving in that route that they were going, and they found a sunken German U-boat, a uh, German, um, uh, submarine. So they went and they investigated, wanted to see what's inside, you know, they go to go see any, any artifacts that's still around. They go and uh, the scuba divers are going into the, into the, into the German U-boat and they're looking around and they see, um, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that is still there. And is still in good shape. And one thing that they found was a journal of the captain. The captain kept the journal and they took it out and they started reading it. And they read on a particular day, I don't know what it was, 1940 something, you know, they read that, uh, um, there was a certain boat that was traveling above them and they were around. Now, the, the, when the English people, going back to our original part at the beginning of the story, the English people, when they said that your ship is sending ship to Australia, they said if anybody signals to you to do, to say who you are, which side are you on, where are you from, you don't answer them. You don't answer a bunch of misfits. We you're not representing England. You know, you don't answer anybody. Anybody radios in who you are, you ignore them. So they're reading this journal. And in this journal says, you know, we saw this, uh, we saw this boat. And they named this, this boat that they, that they saw. And we radioed, you know, declare um, yourself. Who are you guys? And they got the radio, but they didn't answer. So we sent it again. And we sent it again. And there was still no answer. So we sent it back to Germany, you know, to the motherland. What should we do with this? What should we do with this, uh, uh, with this boat? So the order came back from Germany, sink it. So fine, we're going to sink it, we're getting ready the torpedoes. And then, um, you know, the, we started noticing that there were things getting thrown off the boat. And there was artifacts on it. So we saw things were, were sinking down near our ship. So we decided we we're going to send out one of our scuba divers and, you know, retrieve some of the stuff, see, what's good, see, what, see what it is. So we opened it up, and we saw German writing. It was German writing. He says, and the, and the captain's writing, he says, look at this, we almost killed our own brother's. He says it probably had some radio, uh, you know, uh, communication issues. We probably killed our, we probably would have killed our own brothers, but thank God we saw the, we saw the, you know, the the, the documents that came floating down, and we didn't blow up uh, that ship. Now you come up to those people that now, you know, are, are in Australia. And you, you know, you think about it, it says, God, what are you doing to me? You're throwing my last memory of my parents. Little do they know that God, you know why God's doing that? Because that's the only way that you're gonna survive, that you'll have kids. That you'll be a grandparent one day. And this is how we have to think of life. We have to think of life that no matter what God's throwing us on us, and yet, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's not easy. But if we have that mentality, our lives are gonna be so much more happier. It's not just gonna be Bimisimcha. It's the whole, our whole life essence will be an increase in, uh, in happiness. This brings us to the next point that uh, there was, uh, you know, generally as a speaker, uh, you have to you have to always be aware of the crowd. You know, sometimes you know that you have to switch topics in the middle of a in the middle of a you know the kid you know starts you start seeing people you know fall asleep you know dozing off. You know, texting too much. If you start seeing some guy under the table, you know, as if like no one could tell. You know, like he's like playing a game and he's you know he's like tilting over. You know, and then he's he's like leaning back and he has that. They're like, oh, I wonder what he's doing. So you know, you start you realize you have to you know switch topics. You know, get wake people up. Maybe say a joke. Maybe say you know get say a story to get people out of the you know you know out of the days and get them back in focus. So this wasn't something new. It always existed. This you know idea that you know people fell asleep, spaced out, went into you know a land. So there was. um There there was a story with Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva in in, in, uh, you know, from the, from the Gemara, from the Mishnah. He goes and, you know, he saw that his students was falling asleep at one point in time. So he told them, he told them as follows. He said, you know why Estelle was ruling over 127, uh, provinces? So you know Estelle, Achashvelosh, ruled over 127 provinces when Estelle got married to Achashvelosh, so hence she also ruled over 127 provinces. Think about like countries, 127 countries, like a significant amount of the, uh, you know, the most of the, uh, basically of the world. So, he says, uh, because Sarai Menu lived for 127 years. That's what he told them. And, you know, I don't know, if, you know, if someone's falling asleep and you tell them that, how's that gonna wake him up? You know, that, that, what, what, how is that a wake-up call? It's not funny, it's not a joke, it's not, it's not a story. Like, what is it? What does it actually mean by that? So, the Midrash explains, and it says as follows. It says, you know why, um, you know why Estelle, literally, Estelle got 127 provinces? Because, um Sarah lived for 127 years. So the question is, because Sarah was a big tzaddikah. So every year she would do more and more mitzvot So every year she got another, another, uh, province. And the, the question is asked, but I don't understand. She was only obligated after 12 and on. So you could take 127 minus the 12 years. That's how many years that it should have been for, uh, that Sarah got, uh, got, uh, you know, those, those amount of provinces. Why is, why is the count start from when she's born? And the answer is because Sarah always wanted to do good. Regardless, even if she could, if she couldn't, she always wanted to do good. She always wanted to do whatever Hashem wanted to do. So that she already started racking up reward from the beginning, from, from zero. Now comes Rabbi Akiva and he says, look how valuable time is. You know, for every, if you, if you can't count it, you know, like I uh, started making a calculation, 127 countries. So, for, for 127, so it's one country per year. What's one month? I don't know, probably a whole state. What's one week? A whole borough. What's one day? A whole zip code. Imagine if God comes over to you and be like, listen, you do something good for, you know, one day, I'll give you the entire Queen's borough, is gonna, you're going to own it. You know, think about that. You would be good another day, you get Brooklyn. You know, another day you get Manhattan. Another day you get, and then eventually you get America. And then you get, you know, all the, you know, get. You'll start ruling the entire world. This is how says Rabbi Akiva. He says, look how valuable time is. Look, you know why? You know why Estelle had 127 provinces? Because you have Sarah Menu. She was every minute, everything was always for the good, and because of that, she racked up 127 years of pure good, and that's why you get the the 127 um, provinces. This is why, he says, like this. That uh, says Rabbi Akiva. He says. You know, you're in a situation right now. You're learning to walk. Says, don't sleep. Capitalize on the moment. There's something very important. If you have the ability to capitalize on something, you have to capitalize on it. This goes for everything. You're in business. You want to do it. You want to go in business. How does it work in real estate, right? I know we're speaking about real estate. If there is a great deal that's on the market, it's off the market before it gets on the market. It's so good that people snatch it up beforehand. Because they capitalize. A good businessman sees a good deal. He doesn't wait for somebody else to counter an offer. He closes right then and there. He closes. He doesn't wait for anybody else. Because you've got to capitalize on the moment. Says Rabbi Akiva to his students. He says, you guys got to capitalize. You're here. You're learning to ah, Wake up. Wake up. Start listening. You're going to capitalize. You look at what the reward that Esther got just because of Sarah. So he says, this is why you always, you know, this is again the same idea that if you if you want to do it and you can't do it, you still get reward as if you did it. But if you have the ability to do it, you're here already, might as well as capitalize on the moment and uh, do what you uh, need to do. This brings us to our next point. And we're going to follow this theme to the end. Um, we still have some time. Okay, so there is a very, very uh, important minhag that every single man that I know takes it so important on Purim. It's that you have to drink so much until you get pissed drunk that you don't remember who's your mother and who's... No, you don't remember between cursed, Hama, cursed Mordechai and blessed Haman, right? You drink Adelo ben Mordechai lebaruch Haman. Which means this, is that you drink. And you drink and you drink and you drink. Until you can be like, Haman, Mordechai, who cares? Everybody's awesome. Party. Yeah, you know, it's, everything's amazing. The obvious question, and, and we're not going to have... A, you know, I, I do want to give a, one point in time a, a class just on that. But we, we don't have the time to, to go through all that whole idea. But one answer in it, what does that mean? Is there ever a time in your life you'll be like, bless Hitler? Haman was literally the Hitler. He wanted to do what Hitler, you know, tried to do. Hitler got, you know, had a, you know, did a more significant damage than, uh, you know, than, than Haman. But Haman literally wanted to do the same thing as Hitler. When is there, no matter how much a Jew is gonna drink, never in a Jewish person's life, I don't care if he doesn't care about God, he doesn't care about religion, doesn't care about anything else, no Jew is gonna say, bless Hitler. No. So what are we? What are you telling me that I have to drink so much that I have to curse Mordechai, the biggest tzaddik, and I gotta bless Haman? And the answer is is, is exactly what we're talking about till now. You know what we? You know what you have over here. You have you have uh, um, somebody that that stole, let's say, money from you. You think that guy stole money from you? People get a grudge to be like, that guy stole money. That guy didn't steal money from you. God decreed that you're going to have money stolen from you. That guy was a, was a shliach. He was a messenger. He was a messenger that God made him to take. Granted, he's going to get punished because he shouldn't have uh, volunteered to be that messenger. Uh, God has many messengers. so It could have been somebody else. But it wasn't that guy that harmed you. It was God that decreed that you should go through a certain thing. So, when we come to the story of Purim, we realize it wasn't Haman. That actually tried to kill us. It wasn't Mordechai that actually saved. Everything is coming from God. Everything is coming from God. And one thing that we learned from the story of is that everything is for the best, regardless of how it is. You see the story when you look at it back. Everything is so amazing about about the, about the story because everything is for the best. Everything in life is for the best. You know what? We drink so much. We bring, we drink so much, saying that it doesn't matter. It's not Haman. It's not Mordechai. Bless Haman. Curse Mordechai. It doesn't matter. Everything is from God, and everything comes from God. And when we start thinking like that, that's the level that we need to get to, and that's the level that you're going to be. Mal- that's a level that you will actually get um, happiness. Okay, so this lets us bring us to the next point, um, and we'll probably dwell on this point for for a little bit. Is Amalek, right? Anybody know who Amalek is over here? Who's Amalek? We don't know who Amalek is. You say Aesop, okay? But now nowadays, who's Amalek? ISIS? Well, the government, the tax collectors, you know, the guy who gave me a ticket, the cop. You know who, who is that? who is Amalek? We don't know Amalek. Yeah, and, and that's why, by the way, you know there's an obligation to kill Amalek. We don't have that obligation because we don't know who Amalek is. Not people who they think, you know, people think like, you know, if everybody is, uh, I have to tell you this story. I have to tell you, this just popped into my mind. I don't know if this is true, but I, it, came, it was going around and, and I, I got it as a as a PDF. Um, crazy, crazy story. I don't know if it's true, but it's still sick. Um, there was once a guy that was driving and um, he was driving and he was, you know, he was driving everything according to halacha legally, everything was legal and he hit an old man. He hit an The old man just jumped out of nowhere, and he hit him. The old man went flying, and he, you know, he put the car in park. He was a religious guy. He runs over to the old man. He sees the old man. He's gasping his last breath. He calls nine one one. He calls out Salah. They're all coming. They're trying to save him, and you know, unfortunately, the guy didn't make it. The guy didn't make it. He went and, uh, and he passed away. And this guy felt so, he felt like he literally killed, killed someone. He literally murdered someone. And you know, the police take it very, very seriously if there's, even if it's a car accident, but if somebody died, there's a whole investigation. To me, through the whole investigation, he had to go to court, he had to go to anything. At the end of the day, he was exonerated. He wasn't, it wasn't at fault. He literally did everything according to did. The guy was, it was his fault. So he wasn't held liable. So it made him feel a little better, but as time goes by, you know, it really bothered him. He says, "I still, I took away a life. It, it's very, you know, you take away a life. It's something that really affects you." And he says, "You know what? I, I can't live this way." And he decides that he's going to go send a letter to Abchaim Kanievsky. And again, I don't know if this is true. I can't validate its authenticity, but I heard the story. It's sick. So he gets a, um, uh, he writes this whole letter to Abchaim Kanievsky, telling him the whole story from A to Z. I was driving, everything was going to me, the uh, go to go to Al-Acha, everything was law, I was legally, and I got to this intersection. This guy came out, and he died. And I, you know, I really feel bad about it. Rab Chaim Kenevsky, you know, arguably, the, you know, or not arguably, the biggest tzaddik in this generation, um, or of the biggest tzaddikim in this generation, right? Is the Gadol Adol. He wrote back one 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 letter one word response. His word was response was Amalek. The guy looks at him. and would be like, you know, well, I don't know. Well, he looks at the letter. You know, he wrote a Mahol le One word back, Amalek. What that, what's that supposed to mean? So he doesn't know what to do. He folds the paper, puts it on the on the side. He's sitting at this guy. This guy who who you know killed was was obviously a religious Orthodox Jew. And he's like, you know what? I can't live. I can't live in my house anymore. Everything. I, I gotta move. I gotta Mishneh Mekol Mishneh I gotta change my luck. Let me move to a different location. And he decides he's gonna sell his house and he's gonna move somewhere else. So he goes. He puts his house on the market and he starts looking for for uh, somebody else somewhere else to. Look. And he's going and he um, you know he finds a house that you know on the market and he finds, you know he goes he looks at it everything is amazing he looks at the... everything is amazing he's like you know what? I want this house this house looks great and he goes and uh, you know the the broker is going there they fill out all the paperwork they are okay fine you know we have all the paperwork just you need to come uh, sign the the final the final agreement is with the you know the the seller and the buyer going to go together and they sign it all so they go and uh, they they go into the you know they meet in the in the brokerage and they uh, they sign the last thing and the guy who is selling the house is looking at him and he says you know you look for, you, you look for a little bit familiar and he realizes it he says, and and, he, and the guy, you know, freezes for a second. He says, and and the guy who who you know killed the person, at, you know, back at one point was buying the house. Now he realizes that this guy that he's buying the house from is the son of the guy that he just murdered, the guy he just killed. And he's like, he's like, you have got to be kidding me. He's like, this is you just can't run away. And uh, he says, um, and look, like, the kicker is, is you know why he's selling the house? Because it was his father's house. Now he died; he doesn't need a house anymore. So he got to sell the house. <coughs> so. He goes and he says, uh, he starts apologizing, you know, he send them already. He's like, Listen, I know it wasn't your fault, you know, whatever, you know, move on with it. Let's sell, let's move on. I want to move on, you want to move on. He says, Listen, now I'm going to move. I want to try and run away from this guy. Now I'm going to sleep in his bed. And he says, What are, you know, we're ready by selling. And he goes and he, and he buys the buys property. He goes, he starts moving in. He goes to the basement and he starts, you know, he starts, you know, sending things up. Meanwhile, he notices that there's like a little compartment in the back over there. So he opens up and he sees this, it's like a little mini storage. So he says, "Oh, got forgot to take it." He says, "You know what?" He takes it out and he decides, you know, he'll call the son to tell him to have him to pick it up. He ta- he pulls it out, and, you know, the cover slips open, and he looks inside, and he turns white as a ghost. He sees inside over there, neatly folded a Nazi uniform, you know, with a big SS and you know, everything, and he's like, you've got, you know, and he takes out this Nazi uniform, puts him on the side, and he starts, and he sees there's documents over there. The Nazis were very, very meticulous in everything that they, you know, that they did. Their shoes were polished, everything was right. You go into their house, their shoes are directly exactly the same, you know, they're like, you know, J- like Japanese, you know, Japanese, J- Japan. Japan is like, you know, everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. So, they go, and, and he starts he starts looking through these sinks, and he sees a list of a bunch of people, the names look Jewish, and he realizes this is probably people that either he was associated with, or he actually killed himself, who knows what this, you know, guy in this Amalek did, and he starts going through the list, he gets to a certain part of the list, his paper, the papers drop out of his hand. he starts shaking, he picks up the list again, his two parents are on that list, his two parents are on that list, now... You realize what, what uh Chaim Kanevsky said, Amalek was was the answer. So crazy, crazy story. Crazy sick. But you think about it, who is Amalek? Nowadays, unless you're Abraham Chaim we, we don't know who Amalek is. You can't say, you know, you have a guy that you know that that uh, you know uh, you know gets you you know into a fight who knows what steals money from you non Jewish and say, Oh this guy's for sure Amalek. You people that people don't like the Amalek, but we don't know who Amalek is. And it's weird because we have this weird obsession with Amalek. It says it's a, it's, a, it's an obligation from the Torah, right? Timcha ezeha amalek. You gotta eradicate Amalek's memory. Nobody knows who Amalek is. What we're we're doing something that's the weirdest. We're remembering Amalek and then we're forgetting about it. Who is Amalek? We won. Let go. Move on with life. We won. We gotta re we bring it back. Amalek. Be like, oh, this time of the year, remember. Oh yeah, don't forget, guys. Remember Amalek and now forget about it. They eradicate it. You got a question? Oh. So it's 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 like this weird obsession that we have. Yeah. Um, Amalek can be now. Uh, it's uh, associated for the for the meaning of like Ah, very good. Zlakabuk. That's exactly where we're going to. Yes, Amazing. So we think that Amalek is gone. Amalek's not gone. Amalek just changed their face. They put on a mask. They put on a, on a cover. So you know, originally there was. You know, why is Amalek so significant? Why do we kill, a lot of Jews tried to kill, uh, you know, the Jewish people. You had Egyptians, uh, you had, you know, there's there's many people, that even came before Am- uh, Amalek. So why are we singling out Amalek than everybody else? And the answer is, before Amalek came in, there was two schools of thought, generally speaking, in the world. There was people that served idols, you know, witchcraft, wizardry, you know, all those, that type of dark uh, magic and, and uh, all the tuma. And then you had people like Abraham, the Jews, that served the monotheism, one god. Yeah, and those are two schools of thoughts. Either idol worship, multiple gods, or or one god. That was it. Comes Amalek and introduces a new thing. They introduce a new thing. It's called atheism. There is no God. Everything is by coincidence. Everything just happens. And um, this is uh you know, this is the this is the idea. You mentioned Amalek is is actually Safek is like doubt. And in fact Amalek is the same numerical value as Safek. And Amalek is two forty, which is the same numerical value as Safek. So Safek Safek means doubt. You know what Amalek came into the world? Amalek came into the world saying, you know what? Um, God doesn't exist. Prove it to me. Oh, I love that question. Ah, oh, that, that they uh, like prove it. Yeah, I need a proof to you. You prove to me that God doesn't exist. I get all this, all the all the time. You know, speaking to atheism is is like a grinding water in your mouth. You know, it's like a, they're they're uh, they're they're even you know people that think that they're atheists. First of all, n- almost nobody's an atheist. Atheist means they can prove that there's no God. Prove to me that there's no God. Hey, you gotta go and prove that. Whatever. This is where my blood pressure starts boiling and I start uh, when I get into this. Well, there's many, many things stands stand in atheism. I have to give a class on that once actually. But um, the, the, the way Amalek goes, Amalek says that everything is pure coincidence. There's no such a thing that there's a higher power, that there's a, there's a you know, that Midrash actually compares Amalek to a dog. What is a dog? You take a dog and you hit him with a stick. Who, who's the dog going to get upset? He's going to get upset at the stick. He's going to start biting the stick while you're hitting me. They, the dog knows that there's somebody behind the stick. There's, a, there's, a, there's somebody that's hitting, that's using the stick to hit it. So, Amalek is somebody that, that comes in and says everything is by chance, it's coincidence. And in fact, they go and they convince everything is coincidence. You know why there was a splitting of the sea? Because Venus came into the world and it came into a certain time, and the gravity pulled on in a certain way. They have answers. They have answers for everything. Um, idiotic answers, but still answers nonetheless. So that is what what uh, what Amalek represents. You know what? the whole story of Purim represents nothing is Safek, nothing is doubt why? The whole idea you know how? because everything happens for a purpose not only is, is, is nothing coincidence everything comes for a certain specific purpose whether it be for your um, you know, right now for your good or whether you're going to see it only later for your good this is exactly why one of the reasons we're bringing up Amalek right over here in Purim right, Amalek, right before this we have the, the, um, the idea of of, um, of, of you know, eradicating the memory of Amalek there was once, uh, the, um, you know, Rabbi Weinberg. No, no, I'm good. I have a little bit less, and we're almost finished over here. What? No, Rabbi Noah Weinberg, the the founder of Tor, founder of Or Um So he once somebody came over to him. It's a true story, and uh, you know, like a real atheist, you know, like a you know, serious atheist. And uh, he told him his story, and he says, you know, one time I was in like this European country, I was touring, and I had an opportunity to go to Israel. Said, so, listen, I'm Jewish. You know, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in anything. So, you know what, I have one opportunity, let me go to Israel. So he goes to Israel, and he goes to the western Wall. this atheist, and he goes to the western world, and he sees, you know, you know, he tells the rabbi, he says, listen, I went to visit a bunch of rocks, and um, you know, I had this feeling, you know, like, you know, maybe, you know, what, maybe I should say something, you know, like, I don't know. So he gives him, he puts out an atheistic prayer. You know what atheistic prayer is, like, you know, like, God, I don't know if you exist, or you don't, I don't think you're exi- you exist, but um, he says, listen, I have nothing against you personally, my dear God, you know, if, if you in fact are out there, but um, you know, I just wanted to say that, you know, if if you do indeed exist, uh, you know, uh, send me a sign. Give me an introduction. Let me know that you're out there. And while he's talking... To the wall, basically, you know, he's thinking, he's speaking to a bunch of rocks. He uh, he gets a tap on his shoulder, and he's like, you know, you know, some people, you know, you're so focused in your own world, and someone taps you, you're like, oh, what, what was that? And he, he's startled, and he turns around, and it just so happens to be at that point in time there was a there was a Jewish um, a Jewish guy from yeshiva that was seeing, you know, you know, you see those people, you go to the hotel, they wear those plastic uh, kippah, you know, that they go up fly off like kites. The second that there's a little someone sneezes, already it goes away. There's this plastic this guy talking to God very much. He says, listen, maybe this guy, you know, maybe you can do some kiryv over here. Maybe this guy wants to hear about. God. So he taps him on the shoulder and says, "Listen, um, I just wanted to know. Do you want to maybe learn about God?" And the guy just like gets blown away. He's like, he's like, "What? Which is that?" He's looking up at the wall. He's looking at it like, "How did you know?" You know, I was just speaking to God, asking him to send me an introduction, and then you come along. So he decided that you know what, fine. Let me hear about it. So he brought him into Ash Torah. He brought him into Ash Torah, and he learned there for six weeks. And after after uh, six weeks, he went back to I think it was in Boston. He went back to Boston and he continued his learning. He continued learning, uh, learning Torah, and um, about about a year later, you know, he when when he was in Israel in the old city, he was walking around and he saw you know this pretty Jewish girl, and he's looking at this Jewish girl and he's like he's like thinking he's like you know so modest, so pretty. He says you know maybe God can help me one day get a girl like that. A year later, he's in Boston, he's learning, he's like in the Shabbaton or something, and he notices that girl, the girl of his dreams, you know, he notices that same girl that he saw in the old city. He's like, wow, what, the, what, the, what a coincidence, what a chance, uh, even though nothing's by chance. So he goes over uh, to her and he says, listen, um, you know, excuse me, you know, I, I don't know, you know, I don't want to sound like a weird stalker or anything, but, um, you know, I think I've seen you in Israel in the old city. And she's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I actually recognize you as well. I actually also, you know, I was, I was, uh, I remember seeing you in the old city as well. Um, right now they're married and living in New Jersey we'll just leave it at that so you know you you look at the, this you know you look at this you know even if God listens to an atheistic prayer you have, look how everything goes into play at the end of the day everything comes out for a reason everything comes out for a purpose there's no such a thing as coincidence I want to finish off with this idea the idea is is that you have the story you know you ever seen a poster I wish I or, you know we would have had on here a, po- a poster of Purim how does a poster of Purim go there's two fish facing each other you ever see that you ever see that? Look at a po- Google a poster of poem. You'll see over there, like like you know, sixty percent of the posters will have two fishes facing each other. What's up with the fish? So, the answer is is that when you look at fish, you know how does you know the bigger fish? How do they eat their the you know their prey? They open their mouth and they start chasing the fish. But the problem is the other fish are pretty strong, and then you find the one slow fish. Who's like sort of like swimming around. He'd be like oh look a tunnel. You know. And he's right into the fish's mouth. And the guy, the, the guy clamps it down. And it's his, and it's his uh, supper. So the fish goes. And he, the big fish is looking at his prey. the little fish. And he's chasing that prey. But meanwhile where does his prey come. Where does his actual food come. It comes you know from around the corner. It, goes, it sneaks in. And it just uh, it goes in. So we look. And, and this is the idea in life. In life. We're going, and by the way, it has to happen this way. Listen to this, how? Because you know, uh, you know, generally, the, a lot of fish they have scales. Scales, uh, there's fins and scales, right? One of the two sides of a kosher fish. So um, the scales they flap down, which means then they fl- and they and they go up like this. Let's say you eat, and, and you have to like s- picture this for a second. You eat a fish head on, um, not head on, which means from the tail back, which means like you're chasing the fish. Imagine you're a fish, you're chasing another f- small fish, and you eat it. You grab it. Now, as, the, fin, as the, the fish goes down, the fins open up. The fins open up, or the scales open up, and they're going to start scratching the entire inside of the fish. And that's very, very dangerous, and it could actually harm the fish inside. But what happens if the fish comes head on first? If the fish, even if it opens, it just closes down right away, because it's going against the, against the float. So, comes, you know, look how God even, even gives the food for the fish. The fish is going and says, I'm going to get that fish. I'm gonna, that's going to be my supper. And it's going in a chase, and God says, that fish is not good for you. That fish is going to kill you. You know what I'll do? I'll send you another fish. And he sends you another fish in that tunnel. You know, he comes in and he, says he sees a nice big, you know, dark tunnel. The fish says, let me check this out. Later that he knows, he's, you know, he, he scrambled. He's the, he's the next tuna fish. So he's inside and he's, he's inside that person. This is how a lesson that we learn from life. A lesson that we learn from life is sometimes we go and we chase something. I need to marry that girl. She's the one for me. I need to get this job. I need to close this deal. And God says, eh, no, not, not really. And we're chasing, we're chasing. And God says, you know, from the circle, while we're chasing, that God sneaks in the right thing for us. And we, you know, we end up swallowing the right thing for us. This is why the fish are faced head on. Not, not, ha- not like you're chasing it, because the fish, the way that it's gonna come, it's gonna only gonna come head on. Because that is the idea. The idea is when you realize that everything that God does, God does for the best, then nothing would ever come in your way. You will always be happy. You will always be so amazing, so happy. This is the fundamentals of emunah. The fundamentals of emunah. You have emunah, you live an amazing life. This is so important that it comes a time of purim. We're coming to the time of purim. We're coming, coming to a time of happiness. And happiness is so hard to come nowadays. How many people are, you know, reaching out to me? and reaching out to so many other people that they're depressed. Majority of people are depressed in this day and age. We have to go, and you want to be happy, you have to actually work on happiness. By the way, I have a whole, uh, I have like two classes on, on, on happiness. Happiness is the goal for life. If you think about it, everybody that does anything in their life, the reason is for happiness. You know why you go work? So you can buy nice things. You know why you want to buy nice things? Because you think that's going to make you happy. Everything you want, you you want to get married? You want to get married because you think you're going to be happy when you're married. You want to have kids because you think you're going to be happy. This driving factor, both Jewish, non-Jewish, secular, doesn't matter. The driving factor in many people's lives is happiness. The bottom line, the goal is happiness. You want happiness? This is the way. This is the golden key to happiness. The golden key to happiness is emuna, Is the fact that if you're able to see, like the story of Estelle, that even everything looks bad, 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 you realize that at the end it's all going to be good. And sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. But one thing you know is that you have a Father in Heaven. A Father in Heaven loves you dearly. And He only wants the best for you. And if it happens, know that it's for the best. Know that it's for the best. When you live that way, you will have the most amazing, not only adab, but Hashem, your entire life will be filled with happiness, success, mazal, bracha, whoever needs a shidduch, should have a shid